Hello and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we're going to look at the life of Lucan, the leader of the Cimmerian Bosporus, a group of Greek colonies on the northern coast of the Black Sea. Lucan took a small territory of a few cities, leveraged the wealth they had gained by becoming the breadbasket of Athens, and helped turn this land on the edge of the Greek world into a long-lasting Hellenized kingdom. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 2, Lucan the First, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Lucan was born at the end of the 5th century BC, around 410, in the city of Panticopium. His father was Satyros, the leader of the city. While he was in charge, he saw most of the Peloponnesian War, which worked out well for his city. Despite their defeat in the war, at the beginning of the 4th century, Athens was still one of the leading cities of Greece, and Greece was still Greece. Greek city-states and their colonies owned the Mediterranean, at least between Sicily and Anatolia. Carthage was the dominant power in the western Mediterranean, based in western North Africa, but holding territory in southern Spain, Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. Rome was in charge of its immediate neighborhood, but was still not as big as the Etruscan League to its north. Marcus Furius Camillus, Season 1, Episode 1, flourished in the beginning of the 4th century, and he helped Rome usher in its era of expansion in Latium. Most of the rest of Europe below the Baltic region was populated with various Celtic tribes like the Celtiverians, Helvetii, Belgae, Britons, you get the picture. Germanic peoples lived in the lands between the North and Baltic seas. Besides Carthage in North Africa, the major powers on the continent were Cush in Nubia, which had begun its move south to Meroe, but still used the more northerly Napata as its center of power as well. And Axum, centered on northern Ethiopia, which was beginning its rise in power. Egypt was mostly independent, having shaken off Persian domination, although they weren't particularly strong at the time. Across the Red Sea, the Sabaeans were one of the most powerful tribes based in Yemen, and up the coast, the Nabataeans were a growing power, at the nexus of several ancient and lucrative trade routes. And north of them, despite their defeats in Greece, and at this point a successful rebellion in Egypt, Persia was the dominant power in the first half of the 4th century, with Artaxerxes II ruling an empire that stretched from the western shores of Anatolia to the Indus Valley region for nearly 50 years. North of the empire, on the other side of the Caucasus, and east of the Caspian in Central Asia, were numerous Iranian people, including the Scythians, Sindhi, Samartians, Dahi, Masagite, and the Ueshi further east. Many of the 16 Mahajanapada kingdoms remained on the Indian subcontinent, but Magadha had begun to assert the dominance that would lead to the larger Nanda Empire later in the century. 
Any semblance of authority for the Zhou Emperor had basically faded as China moved into the Warring States period. To the north of China were tribal confederations, including the Donghu, as well as the Xiongnu, who had not yet risen to be the dominant power in Mongolia. Across the Pacific, the Olmec culture of Mesoamerica began a precipitous decline. The Chavan culture was dominant in the Andean region, bringing the first real urban culture to South America, irrigating lands and building temples in the highlands. The Adena culture, mound builders in what is today Ohio and the surrounding states, flourished. So back to where we started, the larger Greek world. On the northern shores of the Black Sea sat the kingdom of the Cimmerian Bosporus, or the Bosporan Kingdom. If you're unfamiliar with this name, the geography we're talking about here is the Crimean Peninsula, especially the eastern end, where the Kerch Peninsula sits. And yes, that's a peninsula on a peninsula, if you can believe it. Anyway, where the Kerch Peninsula ends, there is a strait, today coincidentally called the Kerch Strait, and on the other side, the eastern side, sits the delta of the Kuban River, located on the Taman Peninsula, which connects the northern Caucasus. Okay, so west to east, you've got Crimea, then the Kerch Peninsula jutting off, then there's the Kerch Strait, then there's the Taman Peninsula, and then, well, then you get Asia. The Kerch Strait was known at the time as the Cimmerian Bosporus, after the Cimmerian people and the Greek term for a strait. It was an important waterway, and on the other side lay Lake Maeotis, today known as the Sea of Azov. On the Asian side of the strait, and like the more famous Bosporus on the other end of the Black Sea, this one was also considered the divide between the two continents, lay a fertile and productive land populated by the Sindai or Sindhi people. To the north, on the western end of the Crimean Peninsula, as well as much of the southern steppe on the northern shore of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, were the Scythians. They were a nomadic steppe people, although some of them had settled in the area to live a more sedentary life. And of course, on the northern Black Sea coast, there were a few Greek colonies. Greek colonies such as Sinope, the eventual capital of Mithridates the Great's Pontic Empire, may have been established on the south coast of the Black Sea as early as the 900s BC. But the Greeks didn't really start sailing the Black Sea and colonizing in earnest until probably the middle of the 7th century, many of them coming from cities on the west coast of Anatolia, especially Miletus. The presence of the Cimmerians, a group probably related to the Scythians, made it difficult to set up camp there, at least at first. But despite the name of the region that was being used, by the time the Greeks really started settling the area, the Cimmerians had been pretty much forced out by the Scythians. Most of them probably made their way down through the Caucasus into Armenia, helping to destabilize the kingdom of Urartu, as described in the Syaxeres episode, season 5, episode 3, while a few made their way to Hyboria. The Scythians, meanwhile, didn't seem intent on settling the abandoned sites on the Kerch Strait that may have once belonged to the Cimmerians, so Greek colonists were able to start establishing themselves on the northern Black Sea coast in these convenient prefab cities. Most came from Miletus, which was the Ionian power, 
and seems to have been a rallying point for Ionian Greeks fleeing domination by the neighbors to the east, the Lydians. We're probably talking 600s BC right now. According to John Hind in the Cambridge Ancient History, despite Greek legends that the Milesians drove out any Scythian occupiers to grab the cities for themselves, quote, For the Bosporus, the truth seems to be that those sites which had been occupied in the early Iron Age, Panticopium, Tyratici, Myrmecium, Nymphaeum, Chimericum, and Phanagoria, had already been abandoned by the middle of the 7th century, and that the Greek settlers would have found empty sites, or have met resistance from a weak remnant of the earlier inhabitants, unquote. There was, in essence, a power vacuum. And for someone from western Anatolia at the time, where there was a bit of a power surplus, that may have been pretty darn appealing. Not that the Scythians weren't present, it's just that they didn't seem to need to occupy the towns of some of their former subjects. These newly reoccupied cities were small, and they were closely tied to their Greek mother cities, usually trading only with them. But by the 5th century BC, the cities on the west coast of Anatolia, including Miletus, had already been crushed in the Ionian revolt against the Persian Empire. The cities no longer held much sway over the colonies in the faraway Cimmerian Bosporus. I mean, Miletus was so ravaged that it basically stopped functioning as a city for 50 years or so. Consequently, the cities on the north coast of the Black Sea became somewhat independent. During the first half of the 5th century, Darius, the emperor of Persia, crushed the Ionian Revolt. He conquered Thrace and Macedon and the Cyclades, although, admittedly, he failed to capture Athens. His son Xerxes succeeded him and also invaded Greece, with worse results for Persia. These Greco-Persian wars, as well as the presence of the Scythians, probably were a big part of why the Greek colonies started to band together into something closer to a state. Not that it was all that clear-cut, but Panticopium became a city that had influence over at least a confederacy of other nearby cities. According to D.E.W. Wormel in his studies of Greek tyranny, quote, the site was naturally strong with a good harbor, though liable to be icebound in winter. Strategically, it was a key position, as whoever held it controlled the straits. Doubtless the hill had been formerly a Cimmerian stronghold, unquote. Panticopium held the Byzantium-like position on this Bosporus, sorta, in that it was the biggest city that sat on the smallest part of the strait. The name itself comes from a local term, perhaps for the Bosporus itself, Panticapa, which means fish path. And fish path it was, making the cities suppliers of food to the Greeks to their south. But fish was a distant second to grain which came from the fertile lands that surrounded them on the Kerch Peninsula and the Taman Peninsula and further afield. And from the north, up the Don River, the Scythians also supplied them with plenty of slaves to trade. But by the second half of the 5th century, it was grain that paid the bills, and much of that money came from Athens. Athens became the most important trading partner and may have gotten more than half the city's grain from that region. As the noose tightened around Athens toward the end of the Peloponnesian War, it always knew it could count on the Cimmerian Bosporus to feed its beleaguered people. Panticopium and its surrounding territory 
was ruled for about 40 years in the middle of the 5th century by the Archaeanacted dynasty. They were ousted in 438 BC by a man named Spartacus. No, not that one. This was actually a pretty common name among Thracian royalty, and it's believed that he may have been a member of the Thracian royal family. Further, the timing might suggest that this changing of leadership could have been put in place by the Athenians. You see, the very same year, Pericles, the most important leader during Athens' golden age, having just concluded the Samian War, decided to go on a victory tour, one which displayed his city's naval power. He sailed along the Black Sea, called the Euxinos Pontos, across the coast of northern Anatolia, and may well have made his way up to the Crimea. According to Plutarch, Quote, he also sailed into the Euxino Sea with a large and splendidly equipped armament. There he effected what the Greek cities desired and dealt with them humanely, while to the neighboring nations of barbarians, with their king and dynasts, he displayed the magnitude of his forces and the fearless courage with which they sailed whithersoever they pleased and brought the whole sea under their own control, Unquote. The Athenians established themselves at Nymphaeon, a town on the southern shores of the Kerch Strait, and established good relations with Panticopium, perhaps because they were involved in some way in Spartacus's rise to power there. Alternatively, he may have been put into place by the Thracians themselves, at the time very powerful, as they tried to influence more of the north coast. Or maybe it had nothing to do with either of them. Regardless, he lasted seven years before he died, but his son, Satoros, allowed the Hellenized Thracian dynasty to continue. Satoros became the leader in 433 BC. He was probably not quite 40 years old, and he lived a long time. In this time, he began to grow his father's kingdom. According to Hind, quote, Satoros had a long and successful rule, one which coincided with Athens' increased need of negotiated contracts for a secure corn supply, but he probably profited also from the needs of other cities, e.g. Mytilene in 428 BC, unquote. He made the Cimmerian Bosporus an essential part of the trade network in the Greek heartland. He did expand the territory somewhat, taking the Athenian city of Nymphaeum. According to the Athenian orator Aeschines in his speech against Tessaphon, quote, there was a certain Gylon of Keramias. This man betrayed Nymphaeum and the Pontus to the enemy, for the place at that time belonged to our city. He was impeached and became an exile from the city, not awaiting trial. He came to Bosporus and there received as a present from the tyrants of the land a place called the Gardens, unquote. Wormel names the Gardens as the city of Sepi, which might not be being exiled from Athens, but it's a pretty decent payment. That is unfortunately most of what we know about the incorporation of Nymphaeum, the Athenian colony meant to be their conduit to the Cimmerian Bosporus into the kingdom. But Hind speculates that since it was towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, as Athenian butt was being thoroughly kicked, this Gylon, sitting there running Nymphaeum with no hope of military help from the mother city of Athens, may have had less of a choice about his betrayal than Aeschines makes it seem. Sadiros' successes were more evident on the economic side. As for the political, he got into conflict with the people on the Taman Peninsula across the Bosporus, 
According to Polyenus, writing in his book Stratagems of War a few centuries later, Satyros tried to get his daughter to marry the Sindhi king, Hecataios, who was already married to Turgateo, a Maeotian princess. The Maeotians were a group from the eastern shore of the Sea of Azov. She escaped and brought her people back with her to fight the Sindhi and Satyros, and she appears to have been successful enough to have Panticapayam sue for peace. To the west of Panticapayam, Satyros tried to take the city of Theodosia, which was closely allied with Heraclea Pontica, a city on the southern coast of the Black Sea, not far east from the Bosporus, uh, the regular Bosporus. Heraclea Pontica sent a relief force, not a large one, but one that was able to lift the siege. Satyros was killed in the conflict in 389 BC, and that is when his son, Lucan, inherited the kingdom. Was it really a kingdom? I don't know. At some point it became a kingdom, but Lucan was just calling himself Archon, at least at the beginning, rather than Basileus, the Greek term for king. The Athenians just called him a tyrant. But don't think of that through the modern use of the word. Not that it was a compliment, but it wasn't really an insult either. It was probably something they did to highlight the fact that they viewed him as a barbarian rather than a true Greek. Tyrant in that time really meant someone who ruled without any real legal legitimacy, whether or not they were kind or cruel. They had seized power in some way, but there wasn't like a constitution saying they had a right to it. And I guess the big difference between a tyrant and a king was that the king was usually acknowledged as a hereditary ruler. I suppose after a few generations, a family of tyrants would become a family of kings. But at least in the first few generations, tyrants just really needed support from a large enough faction of the city that challenging them would be quite unwise. It seems that Lucan had that. Surely in the merchant class, which benefited greatly from the Spartacid dynasty's rule. And the fact that he was now the third generation Spartacid suggests it was shifting to a hereditary monarchy anyway. But Archon, Tyrannos, or Basileus, this ruler from Panticapayam helped build out what would certainly be a kingdom eventually. So I'm going to call the Bosporan kingdom, or the kingdom of the Cimmerian Bosporus, a kingdom because I try not to get too, too precious about these kind of things, despite what my last few minutes of speaking might indicate. All right, so back to Lucan. Lucan, taking over in 389 BC, inherited the uh, leadership of a growing and strong state. It wasn't Greek per se. Lucan was probably of Odrysian heritage, the kingdom in Thrace, although he was born in Panticopium. Many of his subjects were probably Cimmerian and Scythian and whoever else lived there. But there were certainly Greeks there too. And the kingdom behaved like it was a collection of Greek city-states. It was an ethnically mixed group, outside of the Greek heartland, with a Greek culture. In other words, it wouldn't be crazy to call this the first truly Hellenized state. And this was a half a century before Alexander started his conquest. Unfortunately, one of the first things Lucan had to deal with was war. First, there was that whole Turgateo affair in the east, where it seems the Bosporans were hard-pressed by the queen they forced out. Rather than continue the war there, Lucan sued for peace. Actually, we don't know how much Lucan did. 
His brother Gorgippus seems to have done most of the negotiating. He went over to rule the lands on the eastern side of the strait, in the name of Lucan, and succeeded in quelling the fight. We don't know much at all about Gorgippus, but it's safe to assume that he was at least involved in most of the eastern affairs, perhaps essentially completely in charge most of the time. The Bosporan territory on the eastern side included the city of Phanagoria, an important trade center on an island in the archipelago immediately across the strait. The Sindhi were the nearest neighbors. It might not be safe to assume that the Sindhi were totally independent, as Satoros had convinced their king Hecataios to ditch his queen Turgateo and marry into the Spartacid family. Of course, Turgateo had brought an army to prevent any kind of true integration between the two states, and they clearly maintained some sort of autonomy. Hecataios, though, was probably perceived as a weak king by his subjects, subservient to the Hellenistic neighbors, which is why his son tried to overthrow him. Sometime around 380 BC, this son, Octamacides, usurped the throne, or at least got a large contingent of the Sindhi aristocracy and military behind him, and then marched out and took the Bosporan town of Labratai. The taking of this town, being Bosporan and not Sindhi, kind of forced Lucan to act. Not that he was necessarily so upset about Acasis Belli to go back to war with the Sindhi. Lucan marched his forces out, probably with Gorgippus involved, and they routed Octamacides and his army. The prince fled, and Hecataeus was restored as king. Now he was certainly a puppet king, although that didn't last long. He soon abdicated, probably because of pressure from Lucan, and the region was officially absorbed into the Bosporan kingdom. Eventually, Lucan would style himself as King of Sindhi. His conquest of the territory seemed pretty easy, despite some real trouble from the region just a decade before. One battle and he grabs territory, what gives? The reason was probably money. We know the kingdom really started pulling in money as we have evidence of some very high-end coins being issued starting around 375 BC. These gold coins were well-made, an indication of the sophistication of the kingdom on the Cimmerian Bosporus. And with a lack of local gold mines, it also showed just how much the trade was enriching Lucan's territory. He may just have been able to buy enough troops to overwhelm the Sindhi. He paid Scythian bowmen to be part of his army. He probably hired other mercenaries, and he improved the navy, in no small part because of how much waterway he needed to patrol. He even convinced the merchants of his lands to take up arms and guard him at times. Well, that may have just been a one-time thing. So let's get into that. See, there was this conspiracy to take down his government. These are the things you got to deal with when you're a tyrant. And he came up with a brilliant way to stop it. Lucan gathered the leading merchants together, and he begged for them to loan him money that he could use to purchase information, telling him who was in the conspiracy. Once they had done this, he told them, well, he couldn't even trust his guard, so they should be his personal guard, because if the conspirators succeeded in killing him, well, they'd never get their money back. This worked. They grabbed weapons, and the merchants attended to him as bodyguards and guarded the palace. He did eventually root out the conspirators, and he did pay the loyal merchants back. 
but we were talking about the Cindy, weren't we? He defeated them, perhaps as early as during the 380s, maybe later, and he eventually incorporated them into his kingdom. Part of the royal family most likely survived in some way and was incorporated into his own family, as some of his descendants were named after Cindy royalty. Inscriptions that mention Lucan eventually also call him the Basileus, or king, of several other tribes in the region. We have even less evidence of any conquests there. But we know he did it because of the inscription, or at least we think we know. Back in the West, Lucan probably had to deal with the fallout from his father's siege of Theodosia when he first came to power. A relief force from Heraclea Pontica came. This may have been how Satyros was killed, and they set about attacking Lucan's lands. They seemed to have pushed his forces back, and he certainly did not come out victorious, at least not in the early stages. Similar to his initial policy in the east, Lucan wasn't ready to immediately continue the fighting. But it didn't go totally away either. War with Heraclea Pontica probably ebbed and flowed over the years. At one point, Lucan launched a surprise attack on Theodosia, but this siege was broken up by relatively few ships. It's believed to be a surprise attack because the Heracleides had a large navy, and if they were prepared, they would have brought more triremes with them. After they broke up the siege, they were able to muster a much bigger naval force, and then they outnumbered the Bosporans at sea. Polyenus tells two stories about Lucan and the war with the Heracleides. One is that he learned that his triarchs, the trireme captains, were going to desert him. Probably because they were outnumbered and getting their butts kicked by Heraclea Pontica. So Lucan had them all relieved of duty, telling them that if they didn't do well in battle, then people would think they lost on purpose and he wouldn't want them to have to deal with that. But it was really just because he thought they'd all desert. And later he had them all killed, which, you know, that's the bad kind of tyrant. Polyenus's other story is that during the war, the Heracleides were having their way with the Bosporans, sailing and landing wherever they liked as Lucan's troops hung back or fled, that sort of stuff. So when the next opportunity arose, he placed his hoplites at the landing site right at the front of the line and had his Scythian allies or mercenaries behind them. He loudly, like loud enough so everybody could hear, told his Scythians that should any of the hoplites flee, they should shoot them. This seemed to work well. Those hoplites were super inspired, and the landing parties were pushed back, giving Lucan a victory at a time when he really needed one. Eventually, Lucan did take Theodosia. That much we know. It probably happened in the late 360s BC because Heraclea Pontica was in the throes of a civil war and wasn't able to come to Theodosia's aid at that point. Does that mean the war started in 389 and lasted for 20, 25 years or something like that? Eh, probably not. What we know is that Satyros tried to take it in 389 and failed. Lucan tried to take it sometime later, maybe 20 years later, in a surprise attack, which suggests there wasn't an all-out Bosporan and Heraclean war going on at the time. And then, probably after Heracleopontica had all their issues at home, Lucan finally took the city. Meanwhile, for the most part, the Bosporan kingdom had perfectly normal trade relations with the other Heraclean colonies in Crimea, which is a pretty strong indication 
that this was not a constant, long-lived conflict. Theodosia was an important gain for Lucan, as, unlike Panticopium, it didn't ice up in the winter. It became a new trade hub for the Cimmerian Bosporus kingdom. And that seemed to be all Lucan wanted, at least on that side of the Bosporus. According to Wormel, Quote, Lucan resettled and perhaps renamed the city, improved and enlarged the harbor, and made it his trading center. The port had the advantage of always being free from ice. No attempt appears to have been made to expand further to the west. The eastern Crimea forms an easily defensible strategical unit. That this was recognized is shown by the earthwork which, starting near Theodosia, runs north to the Sea of Azov, and which must indicate the limits of the Bosporan kingdom, unquote. Theodosia was on the western edge of the Kerch Peninsula, and maybe he wasn't really interested in pushing further west onto the larger part of Crimea, which might have been more populated with Scythians. So this secured his western frontier. He didn't seem to have any desire to push further. Chersonesus, a Greek colony on the western tip of Crimea, would have been quite a prize, but he had made himself a defensible western border, and we have no evidence that he tried to go any further. By the time Lucan died in the 340s, his kingdom had expanded beyond the small but lucrative region immediately around the Cimmerian Bosporus. He likely held the entire Kerch Peninsula, as far as Theodosia, and on the other side of the strait, he held some undefined swath of territory that went beyond the coastline. He had enriched and enlarged the kingdom and successfully passed it along to his offspring. His son Spartacus II inherited the throne, and his other surviving heir, Pirasades, was given regency of the eastern side of the strait, just like Gorgippus. This suggests Gorgippus was no longer alive at this point, but again, we don't really know. Spartacus died after five years, and Pirasades took over. He extended the kingdom's territory up the east coast of the Sea of Azov, and incorporated the city of Tanais. This city sat at the mouth of the Tanais River, today known as the Don River, and it was a major trade hub itself. It was the natural point for goods from the interior of what is today western Russia to flow down into the Black Sea. Parasades ruled for over 30 years, and although there was that brief interlude when Spartacus II was king, that was nearly 80 years with just two kings. It helped the kingdom continue to grow as it introduced a stable environment for it to profit from its position and trade with the Greeks. After Pirasades died, there was a civil war among his sons, although the winner was strong enough to restore any territory lost in the war. The kingdom remained strong through the 3rd century BC, engaging in diplomacy with the Hellenistic kingdoms of the Diadochi. Suddenly, the idea of a Hellenized state far from Greece being an actual kingdom instead of a tyranny didn't seem so crazy to everyone, did it? Even by the Athenians, the kings of the Cimmerian Bosporus were being called Basileus instead of Tyrannos. Meanwhile, throughout the 2nd century BC, trade continued, although Ptolemaic Egypt became a rival source of grain, which may have had a negative effect on Panticopium's treasury. And there was trouble from the Scythians, who themselves were being pushed from their territory by the Samartians. 
Sometime around 110 BC, Mithridates the Great, Season 1, Episode 3, sent a general to the Bosporan kingdom to help fight the Scythians, probably in exchange for some sort of vassalage. But before he could help out, the Scythians overran the kingdom and killed the last Spartacid king. So Mithridates sent the general, Diophantus, sailing back with a large force who kicked the Scythians out. It became part of Mithridates' large Pontic kingdom. And if you listen to Season 1, Episode 3, you know the Cimmerian Bosporus is where Mithridates concluded his wild adventures. It wasn't long before the kingdom became a Roman client kingdom, but it actually lasted as such for centuries. It finally succumbed to the Gothic and Hunnic invasions of the 300s and 400s AD, five or six centuries after Lucan established it as more than just the land in a few cities immediately on the Cimmerian Bosporus. Lucan was not a paragon of virtue, but there is nothing to suggest he was especially tyrannical. He had his moments, including the killing of the Triarchs, who were going to desert him. He was, let's say, a master of real politique. One story that comes down from Athenaeus, writing around 200 AD, is that Lucan realized one of the men close to his inner circle was cheating the others out of money, perhaps slandering them as well. Lucan, ever the pragmatist, told him, Quote, I swear by the gods that I would kill you if a tyrannical government did not stand in need of bad men, unquote. Now this story seems mighty apocryphal, but interesting nonetheless. A good way to help understand just how a tyrant might have to behave in order to maintain his grip on power. True or not, Lucan certainly maintained power in the Bosporus, and he grew his lands and created something more out of it all. According to Wormel, Quote, it was Lucan's achievement to expand the Bosporan kingdom to its logical limits and to provide it with a form of government which was strong enough to ensure peace at home, to protect the country from foreign enemies, and to guard the trade route upon which its prosperity depended. This enabled him to exploit the economic resources of his kingdom, which became the granary of Greece and flourished under his administration and that of his immediate successors as never before. Unquote. Lucan created a lasting kingdom out of a multicultural state. This was remarkable for several reasons. First, tyrants, good or bad, rarely lasted long in the Greek world, and their territories almost never remained in their family for generations. Lucan built the model for his successors that eventually turned his state into a hereditary monarchy, something that had really not been done by Greek tyrants much before then. His path was one that was followed by the Diadochi, the successors to Alexander the Great, who, similarly, ruled over multicultural domains and managed to turn these into hereditary kingdoms as well. The kingdom of the Cimmerian Bosporus flourished as the first lasting Hellenistic monarchy, and Lucan, its greatest leader, did the most to set it on this path. Next week, we go basically to the furthest point in the Greek world from the Cimmerian Bosporus, to a man who is probably only a couple of years younger than Lucan, and flourished only a few years after him. Thanks for listening. <laughs>